Hi there, and welcome to Macro. Micro. <laughs> were you were you forgetting or pondering? I'm, hes or I'm, I'm hesitating because it's, uh, our name is so long. Sometimes I lose track of it. I've had that problem myself. Where are we? Uh, after macro and micro, it's Michael, and then Marco, and startups at the edge, otherwise known as M4 Edge. And we've been doing this now, Marco, for a little bit over a year, and we've had the privilege of speaking to lots of great startups, some great VCs, companies kind of from all over the world, all over the spectrum of types of great tech startups, of cool tech startups. And we've begun to formulate a theory of what this all means and what is happening to the economy. Indeed, because the byline of our podcast is technologies that change the way the economy works. And so I think we're starting to get a much more concrete sense of what the new economy is going to look like. And so for this podcast, you lucky listeners, instead of hearing us interview a startup CEO or CTO, you're going to hear me and Marco discuss what we think is happening to the economy, how we think it's changing because of all these startups. And we've come up with a theory um, that we're calling the rapid economy. Um, and we should rapid probably spell acronym. it out, yeah. And we should yeah. probably spell it out like all acronyms that can be a bit obscure. So R is for remote, and we'll walk through these, but here we mean you know, remote working, remote control, remote monitoring of drones, remote production via different kinds of advanced manufacturing techniques. And the A is predictable. It's for automation, which is a key feature of this revolution. It's a key source of uh, advantages, but also fears. P stands for also perhaps predictable. It stands for productivity. And if you've been following any of the debate around productivity, you know that there's a little bit of a mystery that's at play. And we'll talk a little bit more about what's happening. So RAP. The I is somewhat less predictable, though. It stands for individualized, individuated, so the individual tailoring of solutions and products, but also for something potentially darker, which is inequality, which risks getting exacerbated by some of the innovations we see at work. You know, going, going through our acronym, I realized that we forgot one of the important P's that we will talk about, which is not just productivity, but also pervasive. We think that a lot of these yeah. technologies are not just hitting one part of the economy, but really many or all. So after I comes D at the end of rapid, and here again, D could stand for a few different things. Obviously, it stands for digitization, uh, but it could also stand for decarbonized, as we hope that many of these technologies will lead to a cleaner future. Uh, but there are a couple more that D could stand for. Maybe it's rapid. D -d -d -d. <laughs> there are. It's definitely decarbonized, hopefully, but also potentially dehumanizing because of a number of uh, adverse consequences that some of these technologies are bringing. Um, I, I hope you saw what I did there. I made you say dehumanized, and you also did the inequality for I. So you're, you're I cast I noticed, as, I the, as the dark one here. <laughs> I, I noticed. I don't think I didn't notice. <laughs> I'll get you back in our discussion. But it's um, worth pointing out also that you know, the, the rapid acronym is nice also because it's a reminder 
of the speed at which these innovations are taking place. So it's a reminder that the transformation of the economy is taking place at a faster and faster pace. Yeah, so that's actually, for me, a good place to start the discussion because one of the questions that comes up in discussions around technology now or around literature is why aren't we seeing it happen? We'll talk a little bit about this when we get to productivity, but a lot of the buzz around these technology, particularly around AI, is that we're entering a phase of hyper growth. We're entering the, you know, past the, the knee of the curve of exponential growth. Um, and then you look and you say, the skeptics will say, well, where, where is it? How come we're not growing at five, 6% everywhere? Why are there slowdowns in productivity? Why are there slowdowns in GDP and some of the traditionally fast growing economies. My own take on that is simply that we are conflating the possibility and the potential or maybe the promise of um, rapid and dramatic growth over the long term, you know, whether or not it's a sort of chondritic long wave with the manic obsession with quarter by quarter GDP numbers, that we're talking about two very different things. We're not talking about the kind of effect that is seen in the newspapers. We're talking about the kind of effect that's seen in economics texts. I think that's exactly right. And I think the other thing which is at play here, Michael, is that we tend to get ahead of ourselves. We tend to get very, very excited. And uh, I am reminded here of one statement that we heard in one of our podcasts. In the podcast we did on the future of mobility, we had a discussion with Mike Granoff, investment manager, focused on mobility, partner of Money Mobility Ventures. And he said something which I really struck a chord with me. We were talking about the issue of autonomous vehicles. And he said, yes, we all got very excited because we got to 90% of the way to fully self-driving cars very quickly. And we didn't realize that uh, the last 10% was going to be a lot harder. And I think there is something there. It's a reminder that uh, we tend to get very excited. We focus on the endpoint, then the endpoint remains out of reach for a while longer. And we act disappointed and we say, well, if it's moving so fast, where are the flying cars? Where are the self-driving cars? And we tend to downplay all the improvements which are taking place at the grassroots. I think that's part of the perception problem. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's a narrative that people want to hear, right? The startups want to convey the, the possibility of you know, magic happening quickly. The venture capitalists are happy to hear it. The newspapers like to write about it. The media likes to write about it, I should say. And so it's an it's a phenomenon that we're all sort of guilty of perpetrating, right? It's something that we we want to hear, um, expectation bias or whatever you want to yeah. you want to call it. Um, I think the other side of that coin, and you sort of alluded to it at the end, is there are all of these little bits of technology that we don't see as magic anymore, and so we just assume it's it's no longer AI. It's just regular old computing, you know, the fact that our cars can tell us when we're drifting out of the lane is an AI-based technology. The fact that our phones, um, you know, recommend to us the next thing to do or buy or whatever it is, those are AI-based technologies, but we sort of shrug them off. And so we don't think that the magic has happened yet. Yeah. 
So let's get to rapid. Exactly, because I think I have more to say on this, but I want I don't want to preempt our discussion on the productivity part of the piece. So let, let's uh, let's start at the beginning. Let's start with the R. The R is for remote, and here again we mean a few different things. It could be remote working through business adoption of virtual reality is one example. And we spoke to the the CEO of D six VR in one of our recent episodes, Andy Maggio. Um, and it's a very niche kind of application of VR. You know, it's for um, data analysis. Um, so it doesn't seem perhaps as sexy as, you know, VR that'll take you to the moon riding a dragon that's seated on a roller coaster. Um, I don't know where I got that one from. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, it's, uh, it's much more real, right? It's no, no pun intended on the VR, but it's much more useful um, for how business is done, obviously. Um, and I think we'll, you know, I, I suspect that's the beginning of a trend. I know that people have been saying this about VR for a while, but Andy was quite clear in how far the technology has advanced in just the last few years, the goggles getting lighter, the tech getting much, much better, and everything all, uh, combined actually getting much cheaper, much more accessible. Absolutely. And we've seen also another powerful example of remote collaboration in the area of 3D printing. One of the companies we talked to, Mark Forged, has invested heavily on the software side and on cloud solutions. And they have developed a cloud-based solution that allows products and parts to be designed in one location and then immediately produced thousands of miles away so that different manufacturing facilities, different manufacturing facilities belonging to the same company can access the same blueprint at the same time, even if a prototype is being changed. So that's a very powerful example of remote collaboration generating efficiency. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's, it's very similar to what Zometry and 3D Hubs are doing. They're both manufacturing as a service platforms, you know, heavily on the originally heavy on the 3D printing side now with a much wider array of manufacturing technologies. But their business models basically are to utilize as much of the existing manufacturing supply chain as possible, regardless of where geographically those manufacturing chains, those lines, I should say, sit. So another example of the increasing remoteness of um, productive work. That's exactly right. It also strikes me that there is another meaning of remote. It's almost more literal. Remember when we had the discussion with Meld Manufacturing, mm -hmm. and they have developed 3D printing technology that allows the machines to operate in the field, so they don't need to operate under controlled conditions, which means that they can operate in remote locations. They can operate in army forward operating fields on oil rigs uh, in mining locations which are hard to access so that, that's an, another aspect it's not a remote control but it's uh, another aspect of technology that allows us to operate efficiently in remote areas in locations which would be otherwise harder to reach that's right and so what we might see over time is a shifting of geographic concentrations of wealth. Um, if these trends 
combine, if they continue in the direction we think they're going, then the, the need to concentrate production in one area grows weaker. So this is, it's a little bit different from offshoring. It's um, more, more of a sort of diffusion of where production, where productive work can happen. Exactly. Now, that's exactly right. And it, it also dovetails with another discussion we had uh, on the, with the rise of the REST uh, Revolution Investment Fund, that's great point, yeah. which points to the, the importance of innovation as an engine of better distributed growth. So leading us towards a new economy where uh, the opportunities for growth, for jobs, uh, will be better distributed hopefully moving away from the current situation where there is so much concentrated in a few big cities that the phenomenon has really contributed to the increase in inequality right right so should we move on to a for automation we should absolutely so you know obviously when people think about automation the obvious image is of some robot some you know machinery that's doing labor that was once done by a human or maybe that could not have been done by human. And that, you know, automation has been happening since the dawn of the industrial revolution in one way or another. Um, but we're now beginning to see actual robots in place. Um, and we interviewed uh, a robotics company, I think a couple episodes ago, um, Anson Kung of A&K Robotics. Indeed. And that's a... a much more friendly and less threatening kind of robot. Right? It's a robot that goes around uh, cleaning the floors of hospitals uh, or shuttling people around uh, uh, airport corridors to take them to the right terminal, to the right gate. So it's the, uh, the helpful face of robots. I've also seen a different company called Simba Robotics, which produces a robot that goes around uh, a big department store and takes images and then with artificial intelligence and uh, visual recognition is able to uh, give you a real-time inventory of what you have in the store and where. It's interesting because Tally is also designed to be a very cute robot. So it's interesting to see how these robots are being designed to be friendly and non-threatening looking. Right. And, I, and here is where your dystopian view should kick in. Yeah, well, all right, right. Are they certainly <laughs> non-threatening looking to the workers who are being displaced, I guess, is the, is the cue you're, you're giving me. I am. And, you know, we had this conversation with, uh, with Anson who was saying that, in fact, the um, the labor unions um, at the, the places where the A&K robots have been installed have been happy because it helps them, um, you know, manage their their uh, workflow. You know, it helps them manage um, sick, sick leave. It helps them manage time off a little bit more. And I think it's still sort of an open question. Is that management of the labor force something that in fact the labor unions are happy with or is it something that the managers are happy with is you know would workers would non-unionized workers be as happy with um cobots or robots supplementing even if it's supplementing and not replacing but somehow working alongside them there's another go ahead no, I, I agree. I've actually, I remember I brought this up in our discussion with Anson because uh, I had this uh, cynical reaction saying, well, if, of course, a trade union might be 
favorably disposed to these robots if they are in a situation where they can already guarantee job security to their own workers. And so they're not too worried about uh, the displacement impact. Uh, because uh, I tend to be more positive, less worried about the massive job losses that robots might cause. But I am skeptical of uh, even some of our guests uh, who immediately feel that they have to say, oh, no, no, our robots will not replace uh, humans. And I think right. you have made the point at least once that uh, there is always an opportunity cost. So the, the robot you see might not take away an existing job, but if it brings more efficiency, it eliminates the need to hire somebody else. So it can right. displace a potential job that wasn't there, but might have been created. Right. That's right. There's also, you know, there's this phenomenon of, of cobots, you know, robots working alongside humans or helping humans in some way. I think sometimes the, the phrase is stretched a bit. So uh, you read a, I read a pretty fascinating article recently about the use of some of these marked, Mark forged 3D printers that were being operated by so-called cobots manufactured by the universal robots company, who I'd, I'd like to have on the show in 2020. So if you're listening, this is an invitation. Um, but those cobots, that setup was specifically to make it a um, a humanless environment for you know for 24/7 operation, or at least 24 hours in a row operation. If it's 24/7, someone's gotta gotta do something. But you know, they're called cobots. But the idea was to get the human out of the loop, essentially, to have uh, nonstop 3D printing production. So it was really remarkable, and the combination of these technologies. There was also, of course, Wi-Fi and good old email involved. But um, the aim was, you know, to enable robot production. But it happens. You know, this automation happens in less obvious places too. It's not always machines doing stuff. No, indeed, we've seen a lot of. Uh automation uh, advancement in mobility and not just in self-driving cars, right? We talk to <coughs> companies like Fleetonomy, like Waker Tech, and you see, we've seen how they can use multiple data streams to automate the traffic management, to automate the dispatching of uh, security vehicles, uh, <coughs> ambulances, fire trucks, police. So we are seeing, uh, if you really, the, uh, the hidden face of uh, automation. So it's an automation that doesn't really show up by eliminating workers where you could more easily come in contact with them. It's automation that uh, unburdens humans of uh, not hard manual labor, but more conceptual intellectual labor. Some of it is computational, some of it is hard, but this is machines, artificial intelligence competing with us on a different level. So competing with us on the calculation and cognitive abilities and not right. on manual labor. Right, not a competition I personally would like to enter in many arenas, honestly. Um, <laughs> but I think one of the more interesting ones in this regard is what Sorcero is doing with institutional knowledge and um, you know workplace uh, instructions on various tasks so they have a natural language processing NLP platform where they're basically collecting the um, the wisdom of experts in different companies and then making it available widely to people in the company who um, don't have that wisdom and so I think you know Deepan Rita would argue that they're not replacing the experts they're just sort of amplifying them 
Um, and I don't know. I mean, I, on the one hand, I agree. I think that argument is, is valid. They're taking the knowledge that exists that was produced by human and um, making it more accessible to, to other humans. Um, but on the other hand, you could also see, you know, once that knowledge is, once that expert's wisdom is captured, his own or her own value is actually diminished for it. No, I'd say it's, it's a very good point. And, uh, and I still believe that, uh, again, I'm an optimist, but I'm skeptical of the arguments that say, no, this automation, this innovation is not displacing human work. I think in most cases, it is, whether or not we want to admit it, it is displacing human work. And the key question is, can it help us create more and better work somewhere else? But this leads us especially to the, the question of whether these 12 months of podcasting has given, <laughs> has given you and me a better insight on one of my favorite topics and paradoxes, which is productivity, because we've just been arguing on, auto, on the issue of automation. We have just been regaling our listeners with example <laughs> after example of robots and algorithms taking the place of humans. And you would expect that if this is happening, it should show up in greater productivity. So yeah, the productivity puzzle, the P in rapid, we have heard that all these technologies are going to improve the economy in unimaginable ways. And the evidence is clear at a really micro level that these technologies have lots of potential. And on a macro level, it seems to be invisible. So what's going on? It's pointing in exactly the wrong direction at the macro level. So uh, let me just give a, a quick uh, overview of the macro level productivity trend for our listeners. So this is given that this is uh, one of those rare occasions where having an economist on the podcast is actually useful. <laughs> <laughs> and the basic L- listeners factor, may want to mark this minute and <laughs> second to share widely on social media. <laughs> Definitely a quotable moment, yes. <laughs> I, I, I will stand by it. <laughs> but uh, the uh, so productivity in the US and elsewhere was running pretty fast until the mid-late 70s. Then it slumped and was in the doldrums for a while until 1996. So in the mid-90s, in the US, productivity accelerated to 3% per year. And productivity, hey, Michael, let, me, let me interrupt yeah. for, for one second, just, just to give our non-economist or non-econ um, wonk audience a little background here. Productivity is measured how? It's a good point. So productivity in a very simplistic way is measured by the output goods and services that are produced divided by the number of people who are producing them. I think that's for our purposes, that is the the most intuitive and simplest way to measure productivity. So for a given workforce, how much can you produce? A more productive workforce will churn out more output. And the theory, of course, is and the evidence over history has been that uh, for the same number of workers uh, to be able to produce more, what it takes is either better skills or more and better physical capital and technology to work with. So workers operating with more efficient machines will produce more stuff. And that connects to the discussion on automation we were having earlier, because in theory, if automation allows us to produce the same amount of goods and services with fewer workers, productivity should 
automatically go up. It's essentially just an accounting identity. Right. But as we were saying, this is not what's been happening. So productivity in the U.S. was growing at about 3% per year between 96 and 2005. Then we had the mess of the global financial crisis. And after that, productivity has been growing barely at 1%. So it's been a dramatic cut in productivity growth at the same time as innovation has accelerated. And the same is true, by the way, the same trend has been observed in most advanced economies. In fact, in some quarters, and maybe even on average for one or two years, it wasn't that it was growing at under 1%. It was actually negative. Correct. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. That, that's correct. Though I prefer to look at the averages because on a, on a quarterly basis, on a short-term basis, you can have odd fluctuations in productivity growth. And so, for example, productivity growth spiked right at the beginning of the Great Recession in 2009. Mm -hmm because of the massive layoffs. So I right. think it's more meaningful to look at uh, longer averages. But now we've had about 10 years in which productivity gives no sign of life. Right, right. And in case it wasn't, it wasn't totally obvious from the way Marco laid it out, if the denominator of your productivity measure is workforce, either total employment or number of hours worked, um, if you have a more productive economy, it means that you need fewer people or you need fewer hours of work to produce the same amount of goods, the same amount of uh, goods and services. I think it's an excellent point. And let me just add one more thing at the general level, which is why should we care about productivity? Why is higher productivity a good thing? Well, essentially because it's only higher productivity that can allow workers to have higher wages and can allow us to have a higher standard of living because we say that it corresponds to more output, more stuff being produced per worker or per hour worked. It also means it corresponds to a higher income per person, higher income per capita. Right. So some of it is tied to the distribution of wealth after production. If that distribution goes to only a small portion of the population, then productivity gains don't necessarily create broad wealth. Absolutely. But I would say the, a useful way to think about it for me is that productivity growth is the necessary but not sufficient condition for improving living standards for everybody. If productivity doesn't grow, we're not creating enough wealth. And so we're not going to be, it's impossible for all of us to be better off. If productivity grows fast, then we are creating more wealth. We can be better off. Then there is an issue of what can we do to make sure that the gains are distributed in a way which is fair and economically efficient. Right, right. So we have, you know, from various guests we've had over the year, we have a few hints that this might be turning around soon. So actually in our very first interview with Greg Mulholland, the first one we did, he mentioned something about how there hasn't really been a change until recently, until the advent of AI used for materials discovery, there hasn't really been a change in the way research has been done and the way new products are designed and developed um, in decades and decades. Um, that it's long slogging research, through university labs, through corporate R&D arms, um, a lot of trial and error, and it just takes 
you know, years to decades before something gets done and that, that hasn't changed. And so one of our early hypotheses, in fact, was, well, maybe this is part of the key to productivity slowdown. The way we build the most fundamental things we, we use, every product, every material we use hasn't changed in decades. And so maybe, maybe this new era of AI-based accelerated materials production will result in a, um, an increased productivity, increased wealth creation. This, of course, ties back to one of the early points I made about how quickly this all permeates through the economy. It's not as if now that Citrine Informatics exists, a switch is flipped and suddenly there's a new you know, productivity lever that drives the entire economy. It takes a while. It's absolutely right. And something that has become more and more clear to us during our podcast is how hard it is for companies, especially for manufacturing companies, to adopt, put in place the new technologies and to use them effectively. Think of 3D printing. We have Greg Mark, the founder of Mark Forged, who pointed out that the key advantage of 3D printing or additive manufacturing, as it's also called, is that companies can then bring products to market a lot faster than ever before because with 3D printing, you can accelerate the process of building a prototype testing it and then modifying it because you modify it simply by modifying the digital blueprint that fits into the machine and then you create a new product. So there's a massive acceleration in the speed of product development and production that takes place thanks to 3D printing. However, we've also heard from the various 3D printing experts on our podcast that they put a lot of effort in trying to make their machines user-friendly. Because a key barrier to adoption is if you are a new a manufacturing company, how do you bring the 3D printer in? How do you make sure your workers are trained enough to use it? How do you make sure it's seamlessly integrated in the rest of your production process? Right. Um, I want to I want to nerd out a l- little bit because um, you know we talked about one kind of productivity, but we didn't really talk about the difference between um, multi-factor productivity and simple you know gdp over labor productivity and can you tell us a little bit about um first of all what it means but also whether or not you think that's going to show results more quickly than labor productivity or will it might maybe go in a different direction so the uh, good good point in the sense that when you measure simple labor productivity the numerator is always the same how much stuff we produce goods and services which are being produced when you take labor productivity you account you attribute all the effort of the production to the worker and so that productivity number you get will measure the impact of how many machines you have and whether these machines are newer or older more efficient less efficient whether they embody new technology or not when you talk about multi-factor productivity what you're doing is you're saying okay hold on a second the uh, what matters is not just 
just the workers, but also the capital, the machinery that they work with. So the two factors of production normally are going to be the uh, labor on the one side and the physical capital on the other. So you know how much companies are invested and you get this multi-factor productivity, which instead captures more directly the impact of the technology. So I think when you, when you look at that, it's, uh, I'm concerned we might, I don't want us to get lost into the technical differences between one number and the other, but I would say we should see the uh, improvement in both measures, both in multi-factor productivity and in labor productivity. In theory, we should almost see a faster improvement in labor productivity if your fears are justified. That is, uh, and not just your fears, but also some of what we've, to be fair, some of what we've seen in the attitudes of companies all over the place. Right. Companies, as they put in place new technology, they are looking for a clearly identifiable return on investment. And unfortunately, often the idea of being able to lay off workers is a very easy payoff to identify. And I've so heard they, that. <laughs> have you? That's an inside joke. <laughs> but, uh, I think that's one reason to expect that some of the first rounds of technology will be replacements of machines for workers and so they will boost the labor productivity probably ahead of multifactor productivity. Yeah. So that's interesting. I was actually I was I was trying to set you up to make a different point. I knew I wouldn't be able to describe total factor or multifactor productivity well, but I was trying to get to a different point or a hypothesis, which is that going back to our remote RR in rapid, I was thinking that in fact if goods are produced in a more geographically diffuse way than they have been in the past. If we're, I mean, I know that you know when you buy a car, for example, it's no longer produced in one place. It's it's drawing from a, a hundred different different places. But if we're right that things become even more remote, then perhaps the total factor productivity begins to move a little bit more quickly than the immediate labor productivity. In other words, if you're drawing on the resources of some other countries, cheaper, you know, think about the comparative advantage for trade, right? So if you're drawing on a different country's resources that might be optimized for one particular part of one particular good, then maybe, this is a stretch perhaps, you tell me, the TFP, total factor productivity, begins to go a little faster than labor productivity. Maybe, maybe. But this is becoming too esoteric even for me. <laughs> so <laughs> I, would, I would nudge you instead towards a discussion of the other aspect of uh, our P. The pervasive aspect of uh, this wave of innovation. Yeah, so this is actually the part that I find most interesting um, when reflecting on the span of of technologies and the scope of companies we've interviewed and we've spoken to. So you know, innovation is reshaping all sectors of the economy. So we have spoken to companies um, like Citrine, who we mentioned before. You know, who are changing how we. Um, design materials. We talked a lot about 3D printing additive manufacturing already. We spoke to Mark Forged and Essentium and Meld and Impossible Objects. So they are changing how we manufacture goods, not just the materials they, that are used, though that's linked to it, in fact. Um, so how they're designed, how they're made. We spoke to Zometry and 3D Hub, so how the supply chain functions, how 
um, we, we purchase and supply goods that are manufactured, but we also spoke to companies that are changing how we educate students in the workforce, like Legends of Learning and SimCoach Games. And, you know, we mentioned Sorcero already, changing how we learn at work, how we communicate knowledge at work. Um, we've talked to companies that will change how goods and people move around. Um, the whole mobility revolution, Fleetonomy, Waycare Tech, Moss Global, you know, every point of the chain is undergoing some kind of revolution. You know, maybe the, the most, um, I, I don't know, interesting, I guess, is one, is one adjective is, is YIVA, YVA with David Yang and changing how human resource departments figure out who's going to stick around and who's going to resign. So to me, thinking about all of these things together in their totality is sort of remarkable. It really is an end-to-end -end revolution in how goods and services are going to be produced, how we're going to work. It is, and it is, and it also makes me think of another another quick point on the issue of productivity. Because, as we said, for me, one lesson of the productivity puzzle that we've learned during our podcasts is that it's going to take a bit more time because the devil is in the detail of the adoption of these technologies, the execution, and companies need to reorganize operations, change management practices. But the other thing which is important and it has a bearing on the pervasive aspect of the innovation is that all these innovations have an impact, they interact, they influence each other. And so I think some of the productivity benefits will only become apparent as these technologies, these changes in technology across sectors have had time to gel and to kick in with the right synergies. Right. No, that's a great point. I mean, I guess our eye could have also been for institutional inertia. Um, but <laughs> that's maybe that's another another episode or something. But instead, we chose uh, individualized and and individuated um, uh, along with inequality. So let's start with with individualized. What do we mean by that? Well, we mean that uh, the uh, greater access to data and information allows us to build products and to develop services which are tailored to individual characteristics of individual companies, individual people. And we're seeing it again across a range of sectors. Perhaps the most obvious is medicine, where the idea of individualized, personalized medicine holds a lot of promise to try to identify the right therapies for individual patients. We've also, we're also seeing it on education and training. And the companies you mentioned earlier, we've spoken to Sorcero, we've spoken to Simcoach, games. But we've also talked to another company, Presenter, which offers AI-driven support for workers to improve their presentation and interaction skills. And it does it in a way that is interactive. So it responds to your presentation strengths and weaknesses. So we're seeing it really across a range of dimensions. And I think something I found interesting is we're seeing it applied even to machines with the concept of the digital twin, which is the software double of an individual piece of industrial equipment that can help you perform monitoring and maintenance based on the conditions of that specific gas turbine, that specific gas engine, jet engine, as opposed to a machine, an average machine of that kind. 
Right, right. So the the other I we had here, individualized and individuated. And, you know, this is a little bit more um, theoretical, I think. But one of the things we, th we think we will see is sort of individualized or uh, unique career paths and unique education paths. So with all of the individualized education um, and training availability, like you mentioned with SimCoach and Legends of Learning, et cetera, you you could hypothesize that combined with the massive open online courses, the MOOCs, and all of the you know new kinds of knowledge you can get um, with a, a few a few clicks online. Um, you could envision a, a future in which people's education is much less um, cookie cutter than it has been. Um, you know, where a major in economics or a major in um, bioengineering no longer really means the exact same thing to um, any two any two people. It could be that there are such specific kinds of skills that we teach ourselves. Um, so that's I think exciting. It also you could imagine it being um, a little lonely in some way. I mean, you know, that's always the thing with charting your course: are you alone? Are you lonely? Right. So that's uh, that's part of the the darker side of how this, uh, how this might be, um, which leads to the other eye, which is for potential inequality. Inequality. Let me take that uh, head on since I'm supposed to be the optimist, but here <laughs> I, I want to start on a realistic note, which is uh, we should be worried about inequality because when we talk about the impact of automation, my view is that the concerns about automation creating mass unemployment are misplaced. This is not what we should worry about. There will always be new jobs, more jobs. And by the way, we're seeing it in the numbers. If you look at the US today, we have never had as many jobs as we have today. The unemployment rate is the lowest it has been in 50 years, five zero. So there's no evidence that innovation is destroying jobs, but the the problem, I think, is the quality of jobs. So can we identify, as machines, as robots and artificial intelligence become able to perform more and more of the tasks we have been performing, can we identify what it is that we as humans can do, which is high value added and the machines cannot do, so that as many people as possible can move on to better and higher paid jobs? It's not a trivial challenge because the alternative is the scenario where most of us end up in low level service jobs because we can interact with other people better, so we can be personal trainers, dog walkers, uh, waiters, uh, all occupations which are fantastic and can be very rewarding, but in today's world do not command very high wages. You know, I think there's a, as you know, I think there's a darker alternative, which is that even those service jobs could theoretically eventually go to automation or to robots of, of some sort. Um, you know, Yuval Harari calls this beleaguer future the advent of the useless class where, you know, humans are just sort of outcompeted both in brawn and in brain. Um, I think that's probably a farther and distant future, but I wouldn't discount it entirely. I think, you know, either way, you know, either your um, more optimistic or my more uh, more pessimistic view, I think the lesson is we can't as a society simply let automation happen without also thinking about all of its consequences. And if we don't plan for um, a transition 
where there's something to do and some, um, uh, you know, way to exist other than existing, um, then we're, uh, you know, we're in for a, a, a bleak future. Um, you know, we, you and I had a little back and forth recently on something we agree on, which is universal, universal basic income. You just wrote about it in your Forbes.com blog. Um, it's, to me, it's, it's peculiar or maddening that so many people think UBI is the obvious answer to this question. Um, and, you know, I think I, I told you, Paul Krugman even agrees with you, which I know is a sore spot. It's but, terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> but even he said, look, if you do the math at all, if you really want to provide an adequate level of income for a universal population, it's, a, it's an amount of money that no one would possibly be willing to spend. Yeah, and for 30 seconds of universal basic income, I think that there are two concerns. One is my, my immediate concern is thinking about universal basic income is a waste of time because in a situation where today the robots don't produce that much, we don't have the money to finance universal basic income and promising it in electoral campaigns is just reckless. But then there is the more... Uh, intelligent and I think thoughtful concern, which is what you expressed earlier, which is if we really move to a world of abundance where artificial intelligence and robots produce everything and therefore we do have the money to finance universal basic income, what do we do? So what is going to give meaning to humans' existence and how do we organize a society where there is no longer a need to work? That is a much more profound question that we should think about because giving universal basic income, once the robots are doing all the job, it's just you know dividing the amount of the stuff they produce by the number of people. It's not a difficult policy problem to solve. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I think for me, the, the big point here is that this is a really vexing question. It's sort of, you know, one of the hard problems that isn't easily solvable. UBI just really is the wrong answer here. That doesn't mean that there aren't answers and it doesn't mean that um, inequality, looming inequality needs to be shrugged off. It means we need to, as a society, think in new and creative ways about, you know, how we avoid this trap we're, we're potentially setting for ourselves. I think that unfortunately, um, you know, corporations are not incentivized to come up with the answer. I think that governments, you know, as evidenced by what just happened at the climate cop in Madrid, governments are poor at planning for long-term problems. Um, and so my own hope is that uh, philanthropists start funding major initiatives on exactly this issue. You know, what's, what's next? Cut some, get some new thinking out there, pay for pay for some people to, to think deeply about this problem in ways that we haven't yet. Let's stay on the dark wavelength as we move <laughs> to the last letter of the acronym, <laughs> to the, the D, which we know it's you know, for digitization. This is a digital revolution that's easily disposed of. It also includes decentralized control, which again echoes the remote aspect we discussed earlier, but then we are left with one very positive aspect of the D and one very negative one. So start us off on the positive. On the positive one, so D for decarbonized. One of the companies we interviewed was Switch, that's uh, with, with a Y. And you know, their 
um, their main aim is to incentivize clean and renewable um, power generation by use of a combination of things, including some blockchain for um, uh, you know monitoring or ensuring that the the generation is actually clean. Um, you know, combining it with a, a suite of models to get the best insights around. So it was a it was a cool if if complicated technology, um, but we've also of course. Uh, been speaking regularly with Ricky Butch um, in our series, uh, Ricky's Reports from the Edge, or Ricky's Startup Reality, as we're now calling it, who's got a um, decentralized, back to D, uh, renewable energy um, platform that he's, uh, he's beginning to build. So that's you know yet another example of, of some of the stuff. I think there are a lot of technologies out there that could help um, decarbonize beyond the beyond the obvious ones um so i'm not talking about you know solar and wind specifically but more along the lines of the companies we've been talking to so for example um materials development for me has huge potential for decarbonization if we can begin to figure out either how to produce things like that have the qualities of plastics but without the petroleum underlying them or if we could figure out how to use captured uh, carbon or co2 um, in other products, we're beginning to do that with uh, cement already. Um, those sorts of advances, I think, are really promising. They're not, you know, they're not tomorrow, but they might be, um, you know, in in a decade or something like that. If we're if we really push, same thing with artificial intelligence. You know, there are all sorts of ways um, in which renewable energy is great. One of the difficulties it presents is that grid management becomes a little bit more complicated because of the um, temporal inconsistencies with of wind and obviously the diurnal pattern of solar power. Um, so managing the grid becomes more complicated. Having AI behind all of those power plants, behind all of the grid, is certainly a promising way to help incorporate renewables more easily um, and decentralized energy more easily into a functioning and, and reliable grid. So I think there's lots of potential out there. Um, and I'd like to, I'm hoping that it'll become evident in the next few years because the clock is ticking. I wanted to toss you the positive aspect of the-, the It's hard to be, it's hard to be positive about this though. <laughs> well, at least you, you can be hopeful. Yeah. The, the other characterization we have for D is the dehumanizing aspect of innovation. And we talked a lot about, of, we have already spoken of a lot of these aspects, whether it's automation, the atomization of work into different tasks, but also as you were pointing out, if we get into a situation where work is more and more done remotely, and therefore in an isolated fashion, if career paths and educational paths become more individualized, do they become more isolating as well? And there is another aspect, another form of manifestation of the D, which you know worries me a lot, which is I just tag it as distraction. Wait, what are we talking about again? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> the fact that if you don't stop glancing at your smartphone, you will not be able to follow the complex train of my profound conversation. <laughs> <laughs> But seriously, we know that there is research now which shows that uh, 
our devices are a constant source of uh, distraction. We are constantly tempted to check, is there a new email? Is there a new Facebook update? We also know that the business model of companies like Facebook, Twitter, Google, you name it, uh, relies on their ability to capture our attention and bring us back to the screens, bring us back to the feed over and over and over again so that they can sell clicks and advertisements. And uh, there is overwhelming and growing evidence that this is doing significant harm to our cognitive abilities, our capacity to concentrate, to think, to take long-term decisions. So in a situation where, as we were discussing earlier, we're trying to figure out uh, how do we keep an edge over the machines, if at the same time the same technology is eroding what should be our strongest ability, we are really in trouble. So this is one aspect of this technological revolution that really, really worries me. I feel like now that we've gotten to the end of RAPID and explaining what it is, we've perhaps left our listeners with a more um, bleak and dark outlook than um, than even I intended. So let's end on a on a positive note. And I, I'll say that although there are a lot of things here that I think are are troubling, I think that the the possibility of really transformative positive change for many of these technologies exists. You know, and it's up to us as a society to not waste that opportunity and not um, not let the the sort of darker possibilities um, and the worst possibilities of these of these different technologies play out. I think we just have to sort of be on guard and be creative about what we do with the stuff. Absolutely. On this positive note, I would say that uh, for me, the positive message I've already gotten from the 2019 edition of the M4Edge podcast is confirmation that these technologies have enormous potential. So we're seeing it at the micro level, step by step. They are creating efficiency. They are improving productivity. So I am confident we will see more evidence in 2020 that the productivity revolution will get going and will create more wealth, more income. The other positive aspect, which is something that I think we will continue to see in the 2020 podcast, is how these innovation, these technologies can be leveraged by investors, by entrepreneurs to create more jobs. And we've seen it. We've discussed uh, platforms like Zometry, so manufacturing as a service platforms, which allow manufacturers across the US, across Europe, to make better use of the productive capacity, to have more reliable flow of orders, and therefore to produce more, to weather the economic cycle better, to keep people employed, to create jobs, plus the companies we've seen like Sorcero and Simcoach Games, which are focused on trying to improve uh, the learning, the human abilities of individual workers. So I'm, I'm positive on balance. I, I enjoy going, uh, I enjoy at times following you down the dystopian <laughs> rabbit hole, but uh, I, I always end up feeling more, more positive and thinking, you know, these technologies uh, will give us uh, a lot of uh, good potential to exploit. And uh, the thing I fear most is always not the technology itself, is uh, humans. I think human, stu- <laughs> human stupidity and not artificial intelligence is the biggest concern. We have, we have nothing to fear except stupid humans themselves. Exactly, that? exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic about one other thing, Marco. 
I'm optimistic that our listeners will, in fact, this time go to Apple Podcasts <laughs> and write us a review. <laughs> and I, I hope you have the similar cause for optimism. <laughs> Nice. Nicely done. You've baited our listeners almost as well as you bait me. <laughs> <laughs> With that, uh, thanks for being curious. We hope you enjoyed this. And uh, pass this on to anyone else you think might enjoy what we're talking about here. Thanks, everyone, and a great 2020 to everyone, every one of our listeners. Bye.